What is transgression is not sex. No, no, listen to me. I know probably say it. Falling in love is a problem. I don't have to be helpful. Wait, why do I have to be helpful? Look at our priceless art collection and I think, what a great country. I'm good for it. Yeah, today on Humidum, we've got some shit that you might want to listen to, or maybe not. I know that you probably don't give a shit about what we're talking about, but we care. So listen, dickheads. I don't even think we care either. No, I don't care either. But tune in. I mean, listen to the rest. There's some stuff happening. We're talking about orgasms, piss, women are stupid. And Jenny Saunter's going to do a review of House of Cards. Oh, First I forgot about review. Jenny. Stay tuned. There is a recurring temptation. <laughs> Pauline Hanson swanning about like uh, Banquo's ghost. All right, Miriam, welcome back to Humidum after a one-month hiatus. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's good to be back. <laughs> now, um, Easter's just happened. What were you doing over the Easter weekend? Oh, look, I went to Melbourne and we went to the Yarra Valley and we bought a lot of wine and I actually stole a Prosecco poster, but there was probably about 50 people wine tasting, so they didn't even notice. It was only $10 anyway and it was Prosecco poster. I mean, whatever. Um, what did you do, Pat? A range of different things over the weekend. Dogs catching up with each other on the Central Coast. Dogs catching up with each other in Sydney. Dogs catching up with each other at Georgina McNeil's birthday. A bit of a, a humidum <laughs> family birthday there. And then I went to the Easter show on Monday. Oh, the Easter show. Mm, which, as most Australians, or at least the people who live in Sydney are aware, the Easter show is an overpriced joke. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, you're paying $40 and as, as an adult and God knows how much as a child. And you go there, you look at some pigs jumping into water, which we've all seen before anyway. Well, I see it every weekend. Exactly. And you buy overpriced bags full of junk. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my fridge would be a better Easter show bag. My side drawer would be a better Easter show bag than Our half of the Our garbage bin would be a better Easter show bag than half the crap they sell there. I think part of the excitement people have for the Easter show is the nostalgia and something feeling something from their childhood. And I quite enjoyed the rides there because Sydney hasn't had Wonderland in long enough. And Wet and Wild is too far out west and it's closed for half the year. Exactly. And no, and if you buy a season pass, pass to Wet and Wild, you can't you get in once. at all because <laughs> oh, well, right. of the lines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then they gouge you for another $50 to get the skip the line ticket. Exactly. Which makes you feel weird when people are skipping the line in front of you. And I feel it's a little unjust, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So what were the crowds like at the Easter show? I imagine it would have been hideous. Well, on this particular day, it wasn't that bad. And I was told by a friend of mine who worked there that it was relatively quiet for an Easter Monday. But apparently Good Friday was feral. Yeah. My, I have a man that I work with. He has four children plus his wife. So six of them are going hmm. and they were lucky enough to get free tickets. But oh. he said he would have been up for $170 for a family of six. Just for entry. Just for entry. you've got to remember that you have to pay for everything in there. Yeah, I mean, a hot dog, like, I feel like I'd have to pay insurance for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, $3,000. Yeah, take out a mortgage. Yeah, take out a mortgage. Especially if you had a family in there. We tried to do the maths, actually, while we are at the Easter show. 
Most show bags average out at about $20, $25. The Star Wars bag that I was interested in was $30, so I didn't get it because I'm sure it would have cost $3 to assemble. And then there's the compulsory Birdie Beetle bag. Oh, and yeah. I'll tell you what, Birdie Beetle must love Easter show because that's the only day of the year they sell anything. I don't see Birdie Beetle anywhere else. I didn't know it existed I'm not looking for Birdie Beetle <laughs> any time else, but I've never seen it anywhere else. When you walk into Coles and say, do you sell any Birdie Beetle, they look at you funny and say, what do you think this is? Yeah. The Easter show? <laughs> and they laugh and they walk away and they repack the shells. And so, I walk out looking quite the dick. <laughs> but this is the thing, you know, and you do. You get to the Easter show and you think, all right, I'm going to go do this mm-hmm. and I'm going to go see that mm-hmm. and I'm going to eat that. But you get there and it's a line of 100 people. So you don't get to see the wood chopping. You don't get to see the cute little pigs jumping into the water. And you certainly don't get a stupid show bag at the end of it. You walk out and you're upset and you just want to go have a drink. You're bitter, tired and disappointed. And you hate Easter. I did have some nice oysters in there. How were there? Where were the oysters? Was this in the Woolworths It was in the Woolworths Fresh. Oh, amazing. (laughs) So I did go in there. I had a glass of wine and some oysters it wasn't cheap obviously it's no, the it's, easter show it's, the, it's like the airports of shows <laughs> everything's right. just like oh sandwich that'll be 20 dollars. thanks i tell you what walking around the show bags area it was like sardines in a very large can yeah and you were being and i bet it smelled through. like that as well oh it's not worse oh Little kids that have pissed themselves on their way Absolutely. to get a show bag with excitement. And you can't find Only to be disappointed when they buy it. <laughs> because they've been given a Birdie Beetle show bag. Yeah. So I know that everyone enjoys masturbation. It's it's a thing that I do regularly and I'm sure that everybody else does as they might not admit it. They're only human. But I mean, there's a new spiritual practice called orgasmic meditation. Now this popped up and obviously, you know, I thought let's have a look at this. So... It's, a, it's promoted by an author and a sex expert and it's done in a group situation, in nests. Now, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what orgasm and nest have in common. Are we birds now? Not entirely sure. But so a typical session of orgasmic medica- meditation begins with a woman undressing from the waist down. All right, that's fine. In a group situation in a nest. Okay, what's going to happen next? Before setting about the woman's genitals, the tutor will describe them in great detail, noting the colour, texture and shape. Then the tutor strokes the woman's clitoris for around 15 minutes, focusing on around 10 different pressure points of the sexual organ. She may or may not go into climax. Now, she may or may not. If someone's stroking my clitoris for 15 minutes... What the hell? What the hell is Elsa's happening? I'm going into climax. I don't think I'd be there in the first place. Lying in a nest from the naked from the waist down while a pervert rubs my clitoris, it's supposed to make you very aware of your body and how you orgasm and where you are and all of this business. But I, as any woman have, you've looked at your vagina enough in the mirror to know what it looks like. I don't need someone to describe it to me. No. I've seen embarrassing bodies, you know? So, I mean, this sounds to me a little creepy. It's totally creepy. There's nothing legit about it. I mean, is this one business that's opened up or is it a chain? I feel like it's just one guy who wrote a book and went, people will do this. And you know what? People do. People are that stupid. Yep. And one person, one person lies in a nest with their pants off. All of a sudden, everyone. And this just shows, you know, women are ridiculous. 
It just leads me into women are ridiculous. Of course. Can't they touch their own genitals? What's wrong with that? You can stroke your own genitals for 15 minutes. Why would you pay for it? Yeah, you can stroke them for half an hour if you want. Get someone else to do it that you're having sex with. Set up your own nest. Why are you paying some creepy guy in like a shirt and tie to lie over you and rub it? And what do you come out with the end? I mean, the article here doesn't really say, and then they were all happy. It sort of just ends with buy his book. We'll What's probably, the book? We'll probably be reading reading newspaper stories in about a year of, of all these women who were molested and yeah. abused by this man. Absolutely. That's it's just terrifying. It makes no sense to me, but it's all the rage in the UK and things just go off in the UK, you know. Everyone's famous in the UK. Everything happens in the UK. Well, what else have you got to do in the UK with all the rain other well, than shack up in a nest? Yeah, and let someone rub your clitoris for 15 minutes. Will you be going if it comes to Australia? Absolutely. <laughs> I feel numb. I do too. We make time. We can't fight everything off one by one, Francis. But if we make this, we make it work for us. Create chaos. More than chaos. War. Fear. Fear. Brutal. Total. I'm done trying to win over people's hearts. Let's attack their hearts. We can work with fear. Yes, we can. You should put on a fresh suit. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. The idea of power as a corrupting force has been around for millennia, from ancient Greek and Roman philosophy to this quote from Lord Acton in the 19th century to the maniacal machinations of a modern-day smog in Donald Trump. We can assume that Lord Acton is acutely aware of the history lessons that we have been taught from Nero, Bonaparte and Pol Pot, but could he have ever imagined of such a character as Francis Underwood? The new season of House of Cards sees Francis Underwood, played wonderfully by Kevin Spacey, at the pinnacle of our modern understandings of absolute power. He is coming to the end of his usurped presidential term, blazing the campaign trail for re-election, whilst also in the grips of a twisted power struggle with the Queen of the White Walkers, wife Claire Underwood, played chillingly by Robin Wright. As in previous seasons, their relationship, whether in good or bad shape, drives most of the plot in season four. The first half of the season is a struggle between the two, as Claire tries to out-Frank as a member of the KKK in his predominantly black home state of South Carolina, while Frank uses his dissident enforcer and chief of staff, Douglas Stamper, played by Michael Kelly, to railroad Claire's ambitions for legitimate political office. The second half of the season is bridged by an attempt on Frank's life by discredited jailbird journo from season one, Lucas Goodwin, played by Sebastian Arcelis. It is this assassination attempt that ultimately brings the Underwoods back together to bring the terror to the capital and to the world. The story arc is not fully realised by the end of the series, with the narrative paused with a particularly ruthless political manoeuvre before the election, but it does set up season five for some seriously vicious international strife. Some of the subplots of season four are recycled from previous seasons, such as the ambitious but rash political rookie type Will Conway, played by Joel Kinnaman, 
or the dirt-digging journalist Tom Hammerschmidt, played by Boris MacGyver. But these weaker subplots serve to emphasise the sheer force of will and brutality that the Underwoods operate under, constantly being underestimated by the very people that they use to manipulate the game. They allow us to see just how far both Claire and Frank are willing to go, and just how absolutely they will be corrupted by their positions of power. What I love about House of Cards, which is done particularly well in this season, is the real-life parallels with contemporary American politics that cast some serious cynicism on the whole system. This manifests itself in the ICO, read ISIS, threat that culminates in a hostage situation on American soil. The Underwoods use the threat of terrorism to distract voters from their underhanded tactics and immoral misdeeds, which Hammerschmidt publishes just three weeks before Election Day, inadvertently pushing them to once again turn over the table and declare war, literally. Through Frank's fourth wall breaking asides, we are able to peer deeper into the mind of a man who is indeed gripped by his need for absolute power and revenge. I felt that these took a little while to gather momentum this season, but they made up for lost time towards the end of the season. In one instance, Frank Riley jokes that a politician would drown a litter of kittens for 10 minutes of prime time, and no doubt he has. This style of narrative brings the audience into collusion with our protagonist, a man we love to hate, a man we want to see succeed, if only to see what he will do next. The cinematography and score of the show are amazing as always and do a great job of setting the scene for tension, intrigue and betrayal. I highly recommend this season for a good old-fashioned binge watch. Overall, I give it seven and a half zesty garlic wraps out of a possible eight. And that's only because Frank didn't personally murder someone. Spoiler alert. So, Pat, that final scene. Mm. The final and most brutal scene of the series brings our collusion with Frank to a head. This scene is the climax of the Underwood's underhanded political machinations throughout the season. And as an American citizen is brutally executed on live television, a room full of officials turn their head and gasp while Frank and Claire look coldly and calmly ahead. Frank addresses the camera and amazingly brings Claire into the fold, who looks directly at the audience as Frank says, We don't submit to terror. We make the terror. Oh, so good. And I feel like one of the one of the best narrative conceits in A House of Cards is Frank's breaking the fourth wall, mm. which apparently is a the theme of a lot of your... Oh, movies. apparently. And, and now that... Um, They've brought Claire into that at the very end of the season. But so it's just subtly. A, yeah, it's it's so understated. And all it is yeah. is simply that she looks down the camera at you mm. and you go, my God, mm-hmm. it's happened. It's happened. She's a part of it. She's a wonderful. part of it. It is, it is wonderful. And I think like voiceover, breaking mm. the fourth wall can be done badly. And, mm. it, and voiceovers can be used because people can't tell stories any other way because they're fucking stupid. Mm. But this is not the case with this show. No. You were drawn in, especially when we're talking about power and absolute corruption of power. Do you think absolute power has corrupted Frank Underwood? Absolutely. The question for me is really, what is Frank Underwood without power? I wouldn't say that he's corrupted by power. I'd say all he is is power. Can you hear that? Yeah. Um, Like... Pick another day to die. That's right. You know, Jesus was busy carking it today. You shouldn't be doing it as well. Yeah, he didn't probably... Well, he probably did tell everyone about it. Yeah, he just... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I don't know. I just think because Frank Underwood is is just his embodiment of power, Mm. um, whether or not that's corrupted him. That is his personality to begin with. So, can he be further corrupted than being evil and murdering people just because he wants to be in charge. Yeah, he's got and because he's, he's he thinks sort of Iago Palpatine figure where it's just mm. evil for the sake of evil. So you think he's, he's evil? That was kind of one of my other questions. Um, because are great men almost always bad men? No. I don't think not almost always isn't 
No. But I feel that some politicians that want power and want influence and, you know, want a legacy, if they have that want, they're going to do more to get it than someone who, I don't know, just is a regular person. I guess seeing the evolution of Frank Underwood over these seasons, I, I've, I compare, particularly this most recent season, I compare it to Breaking Bad, where you oh, see someone who's That's exactly good. where I was going. Yeah. And because... you see someone who's, who starts good mm. and turns bad and you're still going for them. Whereas mm. I think with the Underwoods, they were always bad and yeah. you knew they were going to be bad from the word go because he kills a dog in the first episode of the first season. Yeah. And kill a dog, you're a bad person. And like, you know, the dog was yeah. in pain. And that's, I guess, the the rationalities that play out with Frank mm. Underwood where he's like, well, the dog was going to die anyway or mm-hmm. I put it out of its misery. Mm. And that's essentially where he's at, where I guess the season leaves us mm. putting America out of its misery, which... And a couple of Syrians at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which, and we may be reaching that point in, in real life. So I think mm. that's the interesting thing about this mm. season of House of Cards is how mm. much the, the events strangely parallel real, real life. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things that I wanted to sort of... Flag though, I mean, we uh, season three of House of Cards was weak. Yeah, it was it was not that good, and I think that season four absolutely makes up for it. Mm. The interesting thing about the show is that it moves at such a glacial pace. Mm. It's so happy to just take its time with scenes, linger on shots of sort of Claire wandering through a building, mm. and staring off into a, the whatever. Mm. It's it's so slow, and yet you can enjoy the. But show. the tension is still there. I mean, it's like a some people hate Tarantino movies because yeah. he builds tension, and I think that's a strength. But I guess that's a personality thing, yeah, uh, I guess so. a personal. And it became it thing. can become um, the tension becomes quite unbearable towards the back end of season four because you're worried about the Underwood everything that they've done being discovered, mm. and that's where you're just going, "My God, is this going to happen?" And mm-hmm. but and I read an article that made this observation about the Underwoods. And it said, while we all sort of celebrate them as these, because you, you, you're rooting for the, yeah. the bad guys in mm. the show, essentially, sort of, and they are still Democrats. Well, you just want to say, well, but that's another thing. Why is he a Democrat? He's from the South. He's well, an the, evil the, the pig. Underwoods were modelled on the Clintons. Oh, okay. Um, and, and again, you're seeing it play out in real life now mm. with Hillary sort of doing her thing. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the plot turns in this season, and they wrote it out before Trump really exploded. Mm. So much of what happens is like the contested convention. Mm-hmm. Right? We're heading towards that with the Republicans, but mm. it's a weird sort of mix, like reality. Mm. Anyway, this observation was made that yes, the Underwoods seem like the masterful political operators, but the least credible thing in the show is that all of their enemies keep making these fucking huge tactical yeah. blunders. Like, I, I read a review that said the same thing. Yeah, and like that's Remington, that's what I'm. Well, yeah, he's not it, in season one. He was a credible enemy, but mm. as time goes by, you like. How can he keep making these errors and still be treated as a, a serious a genuine threat? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's right. The stuff with Walter White, as you mentioned, with yeah. Breaking Bad is great because the thing that got me about Breaking Bad at the end was how Walter White had gone so far, but he fucking loved it. Mm. Like at the start, he's just, you know, a boring chemistry teacher that is kind of at the end of his rope. So I have to sell ice. Well, yeah. Life. I mean, logical. I mean, we've all been there. That's what I'm going to do at the end of my teaching career. Yeah, of course. Maybe during it, too. You never know. Um, but Frank obviously loves it from the start. He loves the contest. He loves manipulating people. Yeah. That is his, you know, sole motivation in life. Mm. And Walter White ends up there and he admits to Skylar that, yeah, he loves it. Mm. He loved it and he loved the power and he loved feeling finally important and strong. 
I just think that the journey that, even though Frank's isn't probably as strikingly different from the start, I still think that those motivations interest me. Characters like Iago interest me. I think we're at a point now with particularly a lot of television drama that, because television is the new cinema, Mm. and it really is, because you can take your time to do these things. Mm. We're at a point now where we're looking at characters who are either creatures of the darkness so when the final episode of Breaking Bad happened, a, a review said, we've seen Walter White make this turn from the light to the darkness. Mm. And at the time they contrasted it with Sopranos and they said, where all of these characters are creatures of the darkness. Mm. And in House of Cards, we have a creature of the darkness. Mm. But it's just interesting that television has, has made this turn towards looking at the darker, mm. the dark, like mm. the, the demons in our nature or whatever, mm. the, the sort of plague people. Mm. Whereas before you'd have these sort of heroic shows, and I think to even if, as far back as Alias, you mm. still see complex, dark characters. Battlestar Galactica, you see yeah. very flawed, complex characters. And I think this is... But it's so much more true to life than a Disney villain that is evil just because they wear a dark hat and have a yeah. twisty beard. Like, but, it, but it's also far more compelling to watch. Oh, absolutely. Especially as you grow up and mm. you experience the world and you're like... No, a lot of people are two-faced. They are secretly evil and news people but have this facade of being, I don't know, a good person or a community-minded person when, in fact, they're actually pushing people in front of trains. And that's that's why I think as I grow up, the more and more I am intrigued by and enjoy the character of Emperor Palpatine. Because when I was little and you watched Star Wars, he Mm. was just the guy at the end who could shoot electricity. But as time goes by, you, you come to appreciate those sort of fascinating bad Mm. characters. And they can just be flat-out evil, but the Mm. texture of evil is so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes the Underwood such a compelling couple. I agree. And mixed with alcohol, we turn into raging brutes. Distorting reality. Now, Miriam, we have a number of stories emerging around selfies. And, I mean, I was told about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, that the year of the selfie was over. But the selfie has settled in now as a permanent feature of people's lives. The first story that I note is uh, National Parks and Wildlife recently roped off Wedding Cake Rock in Royal National Park, south of Sydney. Quite a beautiful rock formation, but it's going to crumble and fall away. Yeah. They put a fence up, said, please don't cross the fence. People kept crossing the fence. They wanted to stand on the rock. They wanted to get photos with it. They put a sign up and they've started fighting people $300 a pop. And yet people are still jumping over, standing on this unstable rock to take a selfie. Well, they deserve to die. I mean, if you're disobeying all of that, then taking your life into your own selfie hands, you know? I mean, people have stood on Sydney Harbour who can't swim to get a selfie, fallen in and drowned. Mm. I mean, I haven't wasted a lot of time crying about that. No. More people die of trying to take selfies than die of shark attacks every year. And we know there are thousands upon thousands of shark attacks every year. We know for a fact, and I don't want to, you know, preempt our Shark Week episode later this year, but we know for a fact that hundreds of millions of Australians Mm. die every week. Yeah. From shark attacks in this country. Are you suggesting that there's similar numbers of people dying from selfies? I think so. Look, I can say for 100% certainty that more people have died taking selfies in Australia than have of terrorist attacks. Absolutely. That's an interesting real stat for you. Yeah. Right there. And I Look mean, it what up. is the selfie doing? What is it What is it doing? It's endangering your life, it would seem. Is it worth it? I mean, you, you're going to be dead. You're not going to be able to Twitter that photo, so what's the point? Exactly. Imagine Get if, someone else to take it. Imagine if Wedding Cake Rock collapsed underneath you mid-selfie. Now, you'd have a great selfie there. 
but your phone will be lost into the ocean. And so who's hashtagging it? And as long as you had iCloud at least so that the photo would upload while you were falling. Oh, look, I so, mean, yeah. that's the next generation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be amazing. Uh, speaking of terrorism and selfies, Ben Innes, uh, one of the passengers on the Egypt Air flight that was hijacked by Saif Eldin Mustafa, managed to get a selfie with the terrorist mid-hijacking. How terrory was this terrorist if he was posing for photos well, on a, this plane? Here's, here's a photo of him because to me he just he looks a lot like I can't a character that. in a film and I can't think what film. He looks maybe a bit like a chipmunk, like a fat chipmunk. So Alvin and the Chipmunks. Maybe. I don't know, but I mean the terrorist looks quite calm. I mean, well, what's the going fact on that he posed posed and I I I mean when uh, what was the bloke's name who was out here? The Link Cafe. The Link Cafe. Man, Man Morris. Yes. Was all about social media. It's the latest thing with terrorists. It social is. media. It is. Ever since ISIS got on board. But how did he how did he broach this subject with the terrorists? Well, I'll tell you how he broached it. He said that Ben Innes, his thought was that there was nothing to lose because if the bomb was real, he was going to die anyway. So he thought, I figured if you know I could get close, there's nothing to lose. He got one of the cabin crew to translate for me and asked him if I could do a selfie with him. The terrorist shrugged okay, so I stood by him, smiled for the camera while a stewardess did a snap. It was the best selfie ever. Quote. Wow. Which country is he from? He's from the UK. Oh, UK. I mean, everyone's a celebrity there. He would probably just got back from uh, orgasm meditation. Yeah. (laughs) While making every singer famous ever. I, I, I'm shocked. Uh, and that photo, that photo, it's, it's, I it's mean. It's the Coke bottle glasses that get me on the terrorist. Well, yeah. And, and it, it turns out the bomb was fake. Well, there we go. Best selfie ever. I'm telling you like a dog. That'd be a fucking acting, you mind. Go to fucking bed. Now. <laughs> no. On the subject of airlines and Miriam, you've just done quite a bit of flying actually in mm-hmm. your, in your two episode absence from Humidorm. News.com.au has an article today. Dante Ramos's hairy problem. Airline passenger puts her ponytail over the back of her seat and in his face. It's disgusting. What would you do if you encountered that problem? I'd say put your ponytail back where it belongs. (laughs) I would get so annoyed at that. I mean, I get annoyed by people just breathing on the plane. And when you're on a plane, you've got such a small amount of space. Absolutely. And if someone's invading it with their hair, Ugh. it ruins everything. Absolutely. And, I mean, it would be going over his TV. Mm. It's bad enough when you're sitting next to someone that's overweight, that's spilling over into your aisle, when a piece of hair's flicking in your face. Oh, no. It's terrible. And, you know, to top it all off, airline staff and aeroplane staff are just awful people anyway. And they're supposed to be lovely. But they're not, and they never are. They never are, Pat. I don't know if they're tired or they've got too much makeup on. I think they're rude. They don't say please. Who'd you fly with to Melbourne? I flew with Jetstar. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, there I go. I mean, no thank you. There was nothing. I flew with Jetstar to Bali as well. What a nightmare flight. <laughs> I got told we couldn't drink our own alcohol on board. The captain was called. He never arrived. And what, I mean, I don't understand. What was happening on the flight to Bali? Oh, we brought our own alcohol on board Mm. Um, and technically that's not allowed according to airline law or whatever, you know, whatever we're saying in 2016. And we were pouring it into Coke that we bought and the stewardess, we asked for more ice and the stewardess was like, what is this? This is alcohol. And we bluffed the entire thing and 
No, it's not. We have no alcohol. We have no alcohol. Meanwhile, I was there with bourbon and coke next to me drinking it while I was saying it. He's like, you know, this is illegal. And I went, oh, well, I mean, what are you going to do about it now? I don't have any alcohol, so it's not illegal. He said, well, when you get to Dempasar, I said, are you telling me that when I get to Dempasar, I'll get arrested for having alcohol open that I don't actually have? He's like, well, that's up to Dempasar. I went, all right. Well, they've shot a couple of people. So I was a bit like, oh, God, what's happening here? Mm. Then he said, I'm going to go tell the captain. And Jay and I actually said, all right, go tell the captain. We were at the very back of the plane. I feel like if we went and to- if he when he went and told the captain, the captain never came because I'm sure the captain would have turned around and said, "Well, that's all very well and good, but I'm flying the plane. I don't care about two bogans sitting out the back drinking bourbon and coke." That's right. We were given more ice in the end. I mean, but Jetstar's awful. There was no apology. That man didn't serve me again. I wonder if Magda Zabanski regrets ever lending her voice to their commercials. Well, I hope so because it's terrible and it's just jet shit. It's jet. Shit. Jet scarred. Flesh eating zombies. Oh my god, disgusting man! Demonic hill beasts. Never ending. It's just like the whole genus whole. That brings us to the end of another episode of Humidorm. Final thoughts for this week? Um, final thoughts is uh when you're a woman and sometimes you do your hair in the morning and then halfway through the day you feel a bit of hair in your boobs and it's a bit tickly take it out then because it just annoys you the rest of the day thank you very much for that period <laughs>